Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. I want you to think back to the early years of the 1980s. At this time, the idea of the 3M computer was born. It was proposed by Raj Reddy and his team over at CMU. The idea of a 3M computer was a computer that could be used by researchers. The 3M stood for three properties of the system. One megabyte of memory, a one megapixel resolution, black and white, and one million instructions per second. One MIPS, or roughly equivalent to a one megahertz computer, at least a modern one megahertz computer. And there's a fourth M that sometimes people threw out there, which was one megapenny, or $10,000. The goal was to create a computer for $10,000 or so that could meet these requirements. And there were a lot of different computers that did it in the 80s. Um, the most famous one I think today is probably either the Sun Station from from Sun Microsystems, uh, which, which really was um, a Stanford University project, which became a company. There was also the Next Computer, which was uh, famous because Steve Jobs worked on it when he left Apple. Uh, but... There, there was a race to do this, and it was a very difficult problem to do. Now, the next station wasn't really up to the task when it came to processing power, but it did have two bits per pixel, so it had four shades of gray. Um, and, you know, black, white, and two, or, and two grays in the middle. And so it, it had, in some sense, a higher resolution display than some of the others. Um, now, t- today, the Raspberry Pi 4 computer can complete roughly 6 billion instructions per second, not including the graphics chip, comes with 1,024 megabytes of RAM, it can drive 14.4 megapixel displays with 24 bits per pixel for lots of colors, and it costs $35. If you want to spend $65, you can quadruple the RAM, and if you want to spend $75, you can get 8 times as much. So roughly 8,000 megabytes, 8 gigabytes. Um, Again, we're comparing 8,000 to 1. We're comparing 6,000 to 1. 6 billion instructions being uh, 6,000 million instructions. And the graphics hardware, maybe not quite as much, right? It's somewhere between 4 and 24 to 1. But computers are better than ever. Computers are in all kinds of things, right? We have phones, we have laptops, we have desktop computers, we have embedded computers in all kinds of devices. Computers are embedded in televisions and and media players and cars. They're very inexpensive and widely available, right? People carry powerful computers in their pockets that cost a few hundred dollars. They have incredibly high performance, right? The Raspberry Pi is the perfect example of a incredibly inexpensive, incredibly high-performance system that, given the tasks of even 10 years ago, is a very capable system. Today, maybe it falls short, at least least if you don't get the highest-end model, but it's amazing what's possible on these systems. Network connectivity, the Internet, has become ubiquitous. People have constantly connected phones with them at all times, right? These are powerful computers. 
your your laptop, your desktop computer, your television is probably a smart TV today. And all of these things are able to connect to a high high speed wireless network or a high speed wired network. Broadband network connectivity at people's homes is very common. Networking of the devices within the home is very common as well. This is something that wasn't the case 15 years ago, right? It was a little more rare to have network a network inside your home. And so we have ubiquitous network connectivity to a tremendous network, incredibly high powerful machines. And yet computers that are more powerful than ever ever are falling short of their potential. Computers are a general purpose tool. They're one of very few. A few that I could think of are reading. Reading is a tool that serves pretty much every purpose you can imagine from education to driving. The lathe, which I've talked about before, being a machine that can make better lathes, it can make screws, it can make all kinds of mechanical equipment, uh, maybe pliers <laughs> and screws, um, screwdrivers. Mathematics is a pretty general purpose tool. It can be used from science to finance to baking. And, and then you have computers in this category as general purpose devices. And as a general purpose device, it's pretty unique because a computer can be programmed to be something completely different. And that's always been the case. Right? You could take a computer and if you load one program on it, it can replace your typewriter. Another one, it can help you do your math. If you do a different one, it can be a game system. And we can see that even more with modern touchscreen devices where even the buttons can rearrange themselves and it can go from a you know television to a music player to a research device to a phone call to a video call to any number of things as you switch between modes of operation. You load different programs, go to different websites. Computers stand alone in their ability to be reprogrammed. There's a reason that computers are in everything now and that things that were traditionally done in electrical or mechanical means have been replaced by computers because they're so very flexible. And you can get a cheap computer that could do a much better job than these complicated, say, electromechanical systems that ran things like jukeboxes. Even vending machines are easier to design and easier to manage using computers. So they're, they're this general purpose tool. They can fit in anywhere, and they have fit in everywhere. I remember reading at one point a story where there was a conference, and someone said, you know, within five years... Microchips will be so inexpensive, you'll be able to put one in every doorknob. And some of the people reacted and said, hey, why would you put a microchip in a doorknob? You know, that's just an insane, insane idea. I don't care how cheap they are. And yet five years later at that conference, they were using little little microchips in the doors of the hotel to, to do uh, the, the card-based locking systems, right? A lot of them now use NFC, right? When you get close, it'll unlock. Um, a lot of the older ones swiped like a credit card. That required the the price of computers to come down. And think about what a crazy idea that is, that we replaced a key, in a, in a hotel at least, in, in all these situations, with a computer and a magnetic reader. If we go back a little bit earlier than the 1980s, we can go back to 1968. There's a man named Doug Engelbart, and he gave what is been since named the mother of all demos. He passed away a few years ago and he's mostly was eulogized on on the radio and, and media as the inventor of the mouse. 
but he worked with a team that was working on what they called, um, I think, enhanced cognition or something like that. They were trying to build computers that were useful to help people think better. And these are things that we do every day now, right? We, we keep our appointments in our, on our phones and we send emails and, and keep our calendar there and, and make notes and all that kind of stuff. And the idea of links and, and to-do uh, programs isn't really uncommon. But the team that was doing that was presenting to a group of similar researchers doing similar work. And what he demonstrated was the future, at least 20 years in the future, if not 40 years in the future, showing what is possible or what would be possible. They had a terminal that they used, and of course, by today's standards, it looks a little bit difficult to use and a little confusing, and certainly the resolution is very low, but it was very much the future. And it's amazing to look at that because you're seeing a, a person, a group of researchers who peered into the future and said, we can do this today. And they worked on it. And of course, the people working on it were doing their work using this system once they got it to a state where that was possible. And then they would improve on it. The early users of it were programmers. There were also hardware people there, right? But but these were engineers that were and researchers that were building this system. If you step forward a little further, Xerox has its famed Palo Alto Research Center, and they built something called the Alto Computer. And I think this is one of those things that's well known by some and has you know been a total mystery to others. It's you know kind of passed them by, but this was the first computer built with a true graphical user interface. It's the first one that was really designed around the idea of the mouse and clicking and icons and pointers and, you know, the keyboard was used for as an input element but not necessarily the primary input element. The The design of this system, you know, the, the legend has it that the engineers took this to the executives or the board at Xerox and showed them what it was, and they couldn't get over the name mouse and gave up on the project and stopped funding it. This basically was the future of computing. It had everything from, you know, a graphical user interface to computer networks built into it. And they gave up on it. And so the design was to a certain extent copied by Apple and subsequently Microsoft. Um, others, I mean, you know, as graphical user interfaces became common, um, there was the common desktop environment in the Unix world and, and, Apple had its environment, Microsoft created Windows, and the world kind of converged on this design using the desktop metaphor where what you're doing on the computer is supposed to more or less seem similar to what you'd find on a desk. So you have your documents are called files, and the files sit in folders. Um, you know, they used to be called directories before that, and I think that the terms are fairly interchangeable among technical people today. But that that was sort of the idea, right? You had this desktop metaphor, and it was supposed to be common. And in in the show notes, I've got a link to the this demo that was done in 2017 of the Alto computer by one of the designers of it. And hearing, yeah, you know, it was the first graphical interface, and it had networking. It's something that, you know, I, I think many people have heard before, but what is is maybe overlooked 
is the actual design of the system itself on a I guess in a conceptual standpoint, right? It was partially technical and partially their goal. The system was built using something called Smalltalk. Smalltalk was a programming language or programming environment. The whole system was built from the ground up to be modifiable by the end user. So in this demo, one of the most amazing things is this this person giving the demo says, you know, a lot of people when they see a big black hole on their screen when you highlight text, they feel scared. So let's change it to an outline. So he showed how you could go in and change the behavior of the computer that way. He talked a lot about this idea of message passing, which is a programming technique uh, or design technique. But the real brilliance of it was every piece of the system was designed with the user in mind, but a user who could, if they desired, wanted to make a change. Early home computers. Okay, so this is uh, maybe around the time of the Alto computer, but significantly less expensive. Early home computers, the, this is kind of known as the 8-bit era now, they would boot to basic. If you turn them on, you didn't put a disk in them, they would still boot up because they didn't have di any kind of storage inside them. You had to add a disk or a tape if you wanted to load a program when it started. But if you didn't, all these systems would boot into a basic interpreter. It's a programming environment. You could type in a program and you could run it. And computer manuals of the day, computer magazines of the day, would include some programs. And if you got a computer magazine, you could type out the, the program that was given and type run and it would run the program. You would have a couple commands you might type in to load a program from disk or load a program from tape and run it. The idea, though, was that the computer, to be useful, had to be easily programmable by the user. The barrier to writing a good program was a little lower then because the expectations weren't really high in terms of like you're gonna have a ton of graphics and you're gonna have this very uh, well-designed graphically driven interface. The expectations were that you would create a system that was usable in some some sense. And the distinction between user and programmer wasn't really a sharp line. I think today it is. I think in general, when we look at a computer system, the distinction between a programmer and a user is a very strong distinction. You get your phone, you get your computer, and you've got some software on it, and you use that software. And if you're a programmer, you use programming software to write new programs. But I don't think it was always that way. I think that like any tool, user skill would exist along a spectrum, and that was an expectation. The expectation was, as a novice user, you would do some basics, follow what was in the manual, but as you gain more skill, you'd gain more abilities, and programming was probably one of those, to a certain extent. That's not to say that it, there was an expectation that every computer user would be a you know full-fledged software engineer, but that you would be able to do things with a computer in a programming sense that would solve your problem. The best way to solve a problem is with someone who understands the problem. And so tools were built that would make things easier. And there's a few of them that, that I've found that seem to really kind of exemplify this idea in earlier systems. And this is past the 8-bit era. Uh, there's a program called FileMaker and a program called Microsoft Access. They seem to be from roughly the same era. One came from 
the the Apple kind of world and one came from the Microsoft world. And they're both designed to give you access to a full or at least semi-full power database. I think Access is a more full-fledged database system than FileMaker is. But both of them give you access to the power of a database without needing to understand every little nuance of databases. Um, Access has the ability, once you do understand all the nuances of databases, to kind of keep going with the you know easy development piece of things. Uh, there was a tool on Macs called HyperCard uh, a long time ago, and it allowed you to do some kind of simple programming where there were different cards that displayed different things, and you could take values from the different cards and jump between the cards. And so it gave you a way to develop your kind of program flow and take user input and display it in a way that looked nice in the system. Uh, Windows 3.1 used to come with a tool called Macro Recorder. Um, and it, what it would let you do is re hit record, and you could record a sequence of like clicking, keystrokes, different things. And then you could play it back, and you could automate your workflow. Um, and, and early computer systems came with... Um, software and source code, the software and source format, and, and hardware schematics for the user. And that, that was the case for early computer systems. This is, this is again, pre-8-bit era. That was always the case. And a system came to MIT, I think it was a printer or something like that, that didn't include the software that ran on the hardware. And the people working there were upset. They were really mad that they weren't getting the software for this hardware that they bought. One of them was named Richard Stallman. He, he looked at this, and he looked at some people who took what they had been working on and turned it into commercial software and felt like something was wrong with it. He, he developed this idea that he calls software freedom, and it's something I'd like to talk about in the future. But really the idea of open source flows from this, right? The the idea that you should get the source code to what whatever software you're using, you should be able to modify it and change it. You should be able to pass it on. Um, and he kind of broke it down under the f four freedoms of software. This ethos still exists in the free software and open source communities. Um, some of the the kind of ideas you might you might want to think of it as is this idea of like share and share alike. If I create something and I share it with you, I expect you to share it back. Um, that's that's sort of the um, the free software movement in a nutshell. You know, you you contribute something out to the world, but any contributions others make should come back to the rest of the world, and so everyone kind of works together. Um, the, another phrase that's that's kind of out there in the in the world is information wants to be free. I think that phrase a lot of times gets associated with hackers and and people wanting to break in and steal information and. You know, especially malicious hackers like, oh yeah, I got your credit card information. Information wants to be free. I don't think that's what that means at all. It means that ideas should be shared, and if you've created, um, you know, a system that does something, the functionality of that system should be shared. Um, so the, those are some of the 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 kind of ideas there about free software that that sort of formed from this locking down of the systems and that probably was one of the earliest times that we started to see computers maybe falling short of the promise that that exists in all these examples I'm giving. Um, 
Emacs is a, an editor program. It's designed to edit text, and it's got an infinite number of plugins, it seems like, that do all kinds of stuff. The most popular one today is called Org Mode, and it's used for um, managing to-do lists and managing um, your, your notes. Uh, similar to what you might find in a tool like Evernote, but that's just one piece of Emacs. Um, you know, some people use it for their email, but mostly it's just used to edit uh, text documents and uh, and programming code and stuff like that. Um, Emacs was designed long, long time ago, and some secretaries in the early days of you know computers being around were using it as part of their job to I don't know take memos or whatever. And as they read the manuals, they started to understand things, and they actually became programmers. They, they wrote tools to solve their own problems. Um, I've, I've linked to this story in the show notes. Um, if you'd told them that, hey, you're going to become a computer programmer, like a lot of people, it would have scared them away. They felt like, yeah, that's not me. Um, I've, I've certainly known a lot of people who, you know, say grew up in the, you know, 50s and 60s and stuff, that the idea of doing anything on a computer is a little bit frightening in, in some aspect. And so these people were, were kind of of that mindset, right? It's like, yeah, I'm not a programmer. I don't know about this. But they were able to learn that, that sort of programming skill enough to solve the problems that they had. And they did become programmers because no one told them they were programming. They weren't limited by their their fear of the phrase, they were just able to go solve problems. They shared shared this sort of um, expertise that they gained with each other, like, oh, you've got that problem. If you do this, then it'll automatically do that. Um, the story I've heard, I I couldn't find a, a source on it. It's been a while since I read about it. The story I heard is that whatever system that they had created eventually got replaced by some commercial offering, and it was far less popular than what they had created. They, they were unhappy about it because what they had created worked for them. Um, a lot, and that's because they understood their problems, they understood their workflow, and they wrote something that solved it. Most early programmers weren't people that learned programming and then tried to figure out what was going on and, and whatever they're trying to solve. They were experts in their domain, they were experts in their field that learned programming because someone needed to learn programming to solve it. And because of that, they generally did a pretty good job solving their problems. If you think about it, it makes sense. If you've got a problem in your work or a problem in your house and you you have the skill to solve it, you're going to do a better job than someone that you bring in. Right? If you want to, you know, if you if you've got a problem that at, at work where the order is going through 10 people and you realize that seven of them aren't necessary, if you can convince the boss to change the workflow, you can save a tremendous amount of time and effort. And that's what solving your own problem as a programmer makes possible. We do have a modern version of that today, and I'd say it's spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are a very unique mode of computing. They're very flexible. They're visually driven. They allow all kinds of linking. Um, they're good at taking lists. They were developed as an idea in 1964. They reached their current form, roughly speaking, in 1979 with the release of VisiCalc. My question is whether or not they would be created today, because they allow users to solve their own problems. I think that if it were today, it wouldn't be spreadsheets that would be created. It would be individual applications that solve specific problems. 
uh, I think it would be a to-do application and a list-taking application and a, a finance application. There'd be a bunch of these different applications that wouldn't be terribly flexible, but they would all charge you their own unique fee. And that's that's kind of the world I see today in, in a lot of commercial software. They solve a problem, but they don't empower you to solve your own problems. And that's really the crux of what I'm getting at this evening. These systems were designed, the early systems, to empower the user. And we're going to talk about more of them. These early systems were designed to empower the user. They were designed so that you could solve your own problem. They were designed so that they were immediately programmable. And that hasn't completely left computers. Clearly, there are people creating them. But there's a big difference between a system that's designed for user modifiability and one that's sealed, one that's locked down, one that has the hood welded shut, so to speak. And more and more, there's a desire for the system where the hood is welded shut. The system you can't modify yourself, the one that's very difficult to do anything to. The more difficult it is, the more popular it is, it seems. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, you know, that people are wrong in purchasing what they like, at least not generally. I think there are sometimes people do things that are detrimental because maybe they don't have the information or, you know, they're, they're provided bad information by the, you know, the company selling things. You know, there's uh, certainly the case of like this RAM doubler software that was sold in like the 90s. It was a complete scam. Uh, it didn't it didn't do what it said at all, right? So that that company was lying, and you know th those things happen. But by and large, right? People buying computers today are buying them because they want to solve a particular problem. And the computer is configured in a way to do that for them. They run the software that solves the problem they have, or at least lets them approach it. And you know, maybe maybe in some sort of ideal world, people would be willing to forgo some conveniences for some level of freedom and flexibility. But in reality, most people don't have that level of interest. Most people don't have that um, that drive to to be able to do that for whatever reason. I think, like the secretaries in that Emacs example, they don't know it's possible. They don't know that they're capable of it. But I think most people are capable of doing this stuff if properly empowered. Now, what form that takes is really going to vary, right? This distinction of, of user and programmer is an interesting one because it's very hard to put a, a line in the, in the sand and say, past this point is programming. A lot of a lot of people, even people working in software, seem to be of the opinion that the difficulty in programming is typing in the code. It's typing in this programming language, the you know, the Python, the, the JavaScript, the C, the you know, what have you. But the truth is anyone can you know can learn that you can figure out that stuff some languages are probably easier than others but with some time and study you can figure out how to write a little bit of code you can solve your own problems that way maybe it's only something simple but maybe that's all you need the difficulty in in programming typically is that you have difficult problems and you need to break them down to such a level of specificity that computers can understand it because computers 
are not intelligent. They're not people. They don't understand what you mean. So you have to break things down. The difficulty in software is oftentimes writing something that's understandable later and that is maintainable. Right? If you go look at, at all the things where people complain about what they've seen in their jobs as software, and I've 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 gone and found that stuff before online. Uh, you know, the most common complaint is I have no idea what this is, why it did it. But beyond a you know a fairly novice level, you don't see people complaining about the the format. They might argue about you know Ford versus Chevy in different languages, and that this one looks this way and that's better or worse. You know, tabs versus spaces is kind of a famous one. But the real real problem is when the problem gets to be very complicated. And the the thing is, some systems make that easier to solve than others. Some are semi-graphical, right? Spreadsheets are fairly visual, and their their style of programming is um, is about establishing relationships and showing you the outcome of different things that you do. Each cell in a spreadsheet has the value it shows, and then up in the little formula editor, it has where the value is derived from. The value could be derived from text that was typed in or a number that was typed in, or it could be derived from a formula. But it all instantly updates and, and propagates to the spreadsheet as you make a change. Um, you've got systems like Visual Basic, which allow you to at least draw the user interface. HyperCard, right? Another great example where you could go in, build this tool, and do some fairly complicated things. I think the game Mist was built in HyperCard. Uh, if, I, if I remember reading that somewhere, I think that's right. So, you know, there is some complexity that has to be solved in programming, and there are some, some places where you do want an expert programmer because that's the center of what you're doing, right? It involves a very complicated thing, or it involves understanding, um, you know, efficiency and, and scaling and different different things, right, where the domain expertise comes from programming. But if you've got a complicated business problem, who better to model it than a business person? Now, maybe they write an initial version, in a spreadsheet or in some other system like HyperCard, and maybe that's not going to work because it can't be published easily to a lot of people or it can't collaborate in the way they'd like to. At that point, you could turn it over to a professional program and they could turn take what you put in and turn it into rules that are more easily distributed as a, as a website or as a downloadable program or whatever. But we're not building as many tools that let you do that today. I've got a few more examples of these tools that I'd like to talk about, and I want to talk about the last time this happened. I want to talk about sort of what changed and why, and we'll do some more comparisons of what was and what is, and hopefully we'll start to be able to talk about the future. We'll continue on these topics in part two. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.